Right, thanks, buddy. All righty. Well, um, uh, in the weeks leading up to Christmas, we are in this series, Real, Real Women, looking at five real women in Jesus' uh, lineage. Before we learn anything about Jesus and, and the Christmas story, we actually read his genealogy. And in the genealogy, we meet these five real women. Each one of them tells us something about Jesus, why, who he is, and why he came. Uh, the lineage, this genealogy, establishes Jesus as a real human being, that he isn't a mythological character or an abstract idea. He was a real person who lived a real life, who came from a real family. And many people expected that the coming Messiah would... Uh, be from a family of great status and significance. Uh, most people exper- expected him to be of an esteemed bloodline, but Jesus' bloodline was not made up of all sinless, wealthy, notable, celebrated people. Uh, his family lineage was made up of real people with real sin who needed a real saviour. And that is what he's come to be. And so far we've looked at the stories of Tamar and Rahab, next week Bathsheba and Mary, and today we're looking at the story of Ruth, a remarkable woman in the Bible. A whole book in the Bible is named after her. She is that significant. And the opening lines of this story, it um, kind of sets the stage in history for where we are at. So pick up your Bibles, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, this is what we read. In the days of the judges, when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now we know from the book of Judges that the, this period of time was when there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was a time when innocent young girls got raped in the city streets and left for dead on doorsteps. You can read that harrowing story in Judges chapter 19. And as a result, it was a very tough time to live. Uh, Even at the best of times, there was violence, there was criminality, but added to those things, there was also a famine. No doubt God's judgment, but a famine hit the land. And the location we're told about is Bethlehem, which is kind of ironic, not just because this is where Jesus will be born into but the word Bethlehem means the house of bread but there's a famine so in the house of bread there is no bread and as a result Boaz takes his family and goes to live in Moab. Now the rest of the story can be arranged around those three characters Naomi an old lady, Ruth young lady and Boaz a man and so first of all we meet Naomi We see in verse 2 that she's married to a man called Elimelech, and she has two sons, Marlon and Kilion. And uh, in the time of famine, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, he decides, let's leave Bethlehem as refugees, and let's go to Moab. So uh, the yellow section is uh, Israel, Bethlehem's in the middle of Israel, and instead of staying in Israel, they go east to the land of Moab and we can't help but detect that the narrator thinks that this was a sign of bad faith for Elimelech. The Moabites were the sworn enemy of Israel. They hated each other and not only that, the Moabites worshipped false gods. And um, not only that, to leave the land 
that God had given the people of Israel, that was a sign of effectively walking away from trusting God to provide for his people. It was a sign that Limelech had said, God, God's not going to provide for it. We need to take matters into our own hands. Limelech is a little bit like many Christians today who are happy to identify as being a Christian, but as soon as trouble or trial hit, they stop going to church and they just go their own way. And as if to confirm our suspicions, the narrator says that Elimelech died a premature death, verse 3, and so too do his sons. We presume this is the judgment of God. And so Naomi is left a widow in a foreign land with no sons. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, widows in, widows in that culture were the most socially and economically vulnerable people in society. Your family were your social welfare system. There was no Centrelink. There was no nursing homes, no Anglicare. There was your family, and she had no family, no children. She's older, which meant she has no wealthy parents to take care of her. She has no prospects of building a new family. She is utterly hopeless. And that's Naomi. No name, no family, no property. She has everything taken away from her by life. Everything is, she's absolutely devastated, living in a foreign land. And when she has nowhere else to turn, she decides, rightly, to go back to Bethlehem. And in verse 19, when she gets there, the women of Bethlehem are standing on the road and they see her walking past and they say, uh, is this Naomi? And she turns to them and says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. And there's this sad play of words on the name. Because Naomi means pleasant and Mara means bitter. And so she effectively says, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. Because the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. And she's absolutely devastated. And you notice how grief takes up human beings and plunges them into despair. I remember reading the story of a um, man who lost his son in a climbing accident. His son was 24 years of age. And I remember reading his story, and this is how he described that moment. He says, there's a hole in the world now. In the place where he was, there's now just nothing. Only a gap remains. The world is emptier. My son is gone. Only a hole remains, a void, a gap never to be filled. I buried myself that warm June day. It was me those gardeners lowered on squeaking straps into the hot dry hole. It was me over whom we slid that heavy slab, more than I could ever lift. It was me on whom we shoveled dirt. It was me we left behind. Sometimes I think that happiness is over for me. And they're the words of a man who was in grief of losing their son. That's Naomi's situation. Not just her husband, but her two boys, everyone gone. That's her story. But then we meet Ruth. Uh, when Naomi loses everything and decides to go back to Bethlehem, she looks at the two women who had married her sons. Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah and Ruth. And she turns to them and she says to them, return home, my daughters. Now, why does she say that? Why does she say, go back to your family? Well, because 
At least they're young widows. At least their parents are probably still alive. They can take care of her. At least she's still young and maybe a man would choose to marry her. They've got a chance if, if they stay in Moab. She says to them, why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. She's saying there's no hope following me back to Bethlehem. You, you still have a chance here. Go back to your parents' home. And it's at this moment uh, that one of the mighty women of faith in the Bible stands up in history with such courageous love that flows from faith. Orpah decides to go home, but Ruth says to Naomi, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Wherever you go, I'll go. And where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if Death separates you and me. Now, this is one of the most remarkable statements by anyone uh, in the entire Bible, a statement of faith. And what we discover is this will be the turning point, not only for the fate of Ruth and Naomi themselves, but for the entire nation of Israel. It's not too much to say that God's entire plan of salvation for the whole world hinges on this apparently insignificant decision of this Moabite woman. And that's what makes this story so extraordinary. Now, why does she refuse to go home? Well, it's at the very least because Ruth has become a believer in the Lord, the God of Israel. She may be a Moabite by race, but now she is a believer by choice. Given the opportunity to return to her tribal gods, she said, I'm not going back that way. Uh, even if it would be an easier life to go back this way, uh, even if I could ma- remarry, have children, no, no, she has begun to trust in the Lord, the God of Israel, and she has put her faith in Him. And it's remarkable, because Ruth isn't choosing to leave her family. She's not just choosing to bind herself to Naomi, whatever happens. She's saying, I will die for you, if that's what's at stake. She is plunging herself absolutely into the unknown here. And notice just how risky this is for Ruth. She's a Moabite. She's the sworn enemy of the Jews. And by traveling back to Bethlehem with an elderly widow, she has no protection. She has no security. This is an incredibly courageous thing to do. And right in the middle of the book, we're told how courageous this is, how dangerous it is to walk around Israel as a young woman. There's one place where Ruth is in the fields and she meets Boaz, who we're about to get to. And Boaz looks at her and this is what he says to her. He says, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. Watch the field where my men are harvesting. Like, watch them. Stay away from them and follow along after the women I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. You see how incredibly dangerous this time it is for women to live, and Boaz knows that. This is the kind of place where not long before a woman was brutalized and left for dead. And what's worse is not only is she walking into a, a, uh, a town, a nation, where women are being raped all the time, she is a foreigner. 
She's a member of a hated race. She's a Moabite, so not only is she at risk of sexual abuse, she's at risk of being lynched. And so no doubt, Ruth knows all of that. And that's why she's reflecting on where you die, I will die. She very much knows that by walking back to Bethlehem, her life is at stake. Now, why does she do that? Because she trusts in the Lord, the God of Naomi. And she even knows his name. Verse 16, she says, Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I'll die. And there I'll be buried. May the Lord... Remember, Lord, capital letters, that's the personal name of God. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if death separates you from me. So we saw this last week, do you remember? Uh, or the week before, the, the, um, the Hebrew word, yod, hey, uh, wow, hey, uh, for Hebrew letters. The Jewish people were so scared of using the name of the Lord God in vain that they just stopped saying it. And it got translated into the Hebrew word Adonai, which translates into the English Lord, capital letters. So wherever you see that word in the Bible, that's the personal name God gave Moses. And Ruth, a Moabite, has heard of the personal name of Jesus. And she calls upon him in faith. She plunges into the unknown, trusting the Lord. And when they arrive in Bethlehem, Ruth goes out, enters a field and begins to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, just notice these little, uh, little reflections in the story. As it turned out, just so happened, right? I wonder who was organizing this behind the scenes. But just notice that. Like, God is not mentioned once in the story of... I mean, him acting is not mentioned. People call upon him. Uh, but he's not mentioned once, but we just see these little coincidences all the way through the hidden hand of God at work behind the scenes. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. And we're going to get to that in just a second. So finally, she comes to land. It becomes her job to scramble for food to provide for her mother-in-law and herself. So she goes to glean the loose grains of barley that have fallen behind the harvesters. There was a law in Israel that said, if you're a farmer and you go up and back the fields, if you kind of missed a section, you've got to leave it. It's the ancient equivalent of Oz harvest. Uh, as the poor come through your land, as foreigners walk through your land on their journeys, they need fast food. Right? So if you went up and back or you took a corner too short, you, you have to leave that section of the field. You can't go back and glean it again. And that was a law God gave Israel to ensure there was enough food for the poor in the society. And that's Ruth. She's gleaning behind the men and picking up what she could get. And it just so happens that Ruth finds herself at the field of a man called Boaz, the third person in this story. This is what we read, verse 4 of chapter 2. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. He said, the Lord be with you. Now this is our first introduction to this man and uh, what kind of man that he is. If you want to know what a man's really like, just look at the way he treats his employees 
He doesn't walk past them in a hurry. He stops. He greets them with a blessing from God. The Lord be with you. And he notices a young woman that he hasn't noticed before in his field. And he asks who she is. And the harvesters tell her she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She came into the field and has remained here from morning until now, except for a short time of rest in the shelter. Now, you can hear the undercurrent of racism there, can't you? She is the Moabite. That's what Boaz's men think of her. But all Boaz hears is she is a faithful and really hard worker that she has worked all day, all morning, except for a short rest. And so he goes to her and he says to Ruth, verse 8, My daughter, stay here with the women who work for me, and whenever you're thirsty, go and drink from the water jars the men have filled. Ruth can't believe her good luck, if luck were a thing. We don't believe in luck. We believe in the hidden hand of God at work, behind the scenes of everything that happens in the world. But she can't believe her good luck. And she says, why have I found favor, such favor in your eyes, that you notice me, a foreigner? And yet, rather than noticing the color of her skin, he notices the character of her heart. He says, I've been told... What has he been told? He was told she was the Moabite. The racist workers say that's who she is, but that's not what he's focusing on. I've been told about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people who you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He is absolutely amazed that she would be willing to take a dead-end life to take care of her mother-in-law. I mean, which of you guys would do that for your mother's-in-law? <laughs> and that's what she, she does. And she's amazed that a Jewish man would be so radically kind to a marginalized ethnic woman like her. At the end of the day, she walks home with a bag of grain that he's given her, and she comes in and Naomi goes, Wow, where did you work today? Blessed is whoever the man who has been so kind to you. And Ruth says his name was Boaz. And Naomi says, Wow, do you realize what just happened? You just happened to work in the field of Boaz. He's one of the very few people left alive who could be our guardian redeemer. Now, what is a guardian redeemer? In Israelite law, a guardian redeemer was someone who had the right to buy back the ancestral land a family had. And so if you fell into poverty in Israel, you could sell your land... And um, in order to get yourself out of poverty, but the person you sold your land to, your property to, they only had it for up to 50 years' time. Every 50 years, there was the year of Jubilee. And on that day, uh, the land would go back to the original inhabitants. So when Israel first came into the land, every tribe, every family was given a plot of land. But if they fell into poverty, they could sell it, 
but every 50 years they'd get it back. But if before the 50 years came up, the year of Jubilee came up back, someone in your family always had the right to be your guardian redeemer, to come along and to purchase your land back from whoever you'd sold it to. That's what a guardian redeemer is. They had to belong to your family. Not anyone could come and buy it back for you. Someone in your family could come, buy back the land. So Naomi, she'd lost her land. They'd sold it when they went to live in Moab, and now everything's gone. But a guardian redeemer was someone who, if that person was willing and generous enough to give up their money, they had the right to buy the ancestral land back for the family of the person who owned it who had to sell it. But the problem in this situation is anybody who would be Naomi's guard, guardian redeemer in order to get the land back, uh, you know, most people would be happy to maybe buy the land back, but in this situation, they don't just have to buy the land. They have to take the woman, the Moabite woman, Ruth, to be their own wife. And they have to start looking after Naomi herself. And in chapter 3, we read of this story that someone is the guardian redeemer, the closest relative, and they're like, yeah, I'll buy the land. I don't want the women. And, uh, and that was the case. And Naomi says to Ruth, of all the fields you could have walked into, of all the men who owned the fields around, you just happened to walk onto his, and he just happens to be a good man, and he just happened to notice you, Maybe, just maybe, he might be willing to redeem us. And so Naomi concocts an enormously bold plan where Ruth has to go to Boaz in the middle of the night, lay down at his feet, and when he wakes up, she essentially has to propose marriage to him. This is what happens, chapter 3, verse 8. In the middle of the night, something startled the man Boaz. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, which is a Hebrew way of saying, marry me. Uh, check out Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8. That's, so it's just a Hebrew, uh, what do you call it, metaphor for saying, marry me. She says, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. That's what she's saying. I want you to redeem me uh, from where I'm at. I want you to marry me. And notice, previously Boaz has prayed that the Lord, God, would spread his wings over Ruth. Remember he prays that for her? May the Lord God spread his wings over you. And it's as though Ruth comes to him and says, Dude, a prayer is not going to be enough. <laughs> you are the closest relative to Naomi. Why don't you spread your wings over me and take care of me? Maybe you are the answer to your prayer. Now, that is a very audacious thing to say to a man, isn't it? So there's this young woman who has absolutely nothing. She belongs to a hated foreign race. And in the middle of the night, she does this incredibly courageous act. She risks everything. And rather than waiting for him to propose to her, which is the way it goes in every traditional culture, she proposes to him. And here we see biblical femininity is not passive. It's not a shrinking violet kind of thing. It's bold. It's courageous. It's full of faith. 
She doesn't just wait passively for the Lord. She waits courageously and actively seeking the Lord's blessing. See, faith usually requires us to take risks. She's gambling, notice, not just her pride at being rejected, but she's gambling her virtue. Many men would have not only told her to get lost, worse still, they would have taken advantage of her in the middle of the night when no one else is around and watching. And yet she takes the risk of faith, trusting the promises of the Lord, and she acts on it. Do you remember Martin Luther's definition of faith? Martin Luther says, faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace, so sure, so certain, that a man could stake his life on it a thousand times. And that's what we're seeing these women do, Rahab and Tamar and Ruth. They so trust in the promises of God that they are to risk their lives a thousand times. They have a daring confidence, a bold confidence, a courageous confidence in the Lord. That's what trust in God gives you. And if Ruth is the diadem in the crown of godly women in the Bible, then Boaz is probably the bright north star of what a godly man is in the Bible. So much so Ben called his son Boaz. That's how much of a dude this guy is. Boaz, he's not offended or intimidated by her faith, her initiative, her courage, her proposal. He feels honored. Listen to what he says. He says, this kindness, where are we at? Oh, I've lost it. I don't have it, darn it. All right, you just have to listen. Where are we? This is what he says. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier, the kindness she showed Naomi. He can't get over it. He said, this kindness is greater than which you showed Naomi. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor, And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Though she is much younger than he, it's not her charm, it's not her beauty that attract him, but her noble character. And he takes up the challenge. And in the end, he marries her. They have a son, and Ruth places the child in Naomi's hands in her arms, and her family line is restored. All through the courageous love and sacrificial boldness of Ruth, she woos Boaz's heart. And now all because of Ruth, Boaz and Naomi are spliced into the line of the Messiah, into the line of David, and ultimately into the line of Jesus Christ. It's a remarkable story. And I think the, the message is, doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, what you've come from to be here today, because here is Ruth. Who is she? She's an outcast, she's poor, she's impoverished, she's forgotten, she's a widow, and yet as an act of grace, Boaz redeems her from her helplessness and marries her. And that is the story in the entire Bible. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've got, God comes to redeem those who are lost and helpless and forgotten and outcast. That's the story of Christmas. Now to wrap up, I just want to reflect on three different things that we see played out in this story. These three things are the way any of us respond to Christmas, the story of salvation. And the first one is this, is that this story, we learn that the right response to God is always faith. 
Faith isn't a wishful or irrational confidence in something that you cannot see. It's not a leap in the dark. It's rather a step in the light where you put your whole weight on the firm ground of God's unshakable promises. And that's what Ruth does. She steps out of the darkness of the life she used to live where she was worshipping superstitious gods and she puts her whole confidence in the God of Israel who had brought the people of Israel out from Egypt, from slavery, through the Red Sea and given them the land before them and promised to be their God. She stakes her life on that promise. You see, most people, they come to God and they say to God something like this, God, I'll follow you, I'll I'll obey you if you get me out of trouble. If you give me a spouse, if you give me kids, if you look after my life, if you give me health, then I'll follow you. But a true believer, a true Christian is someone who is very, very different. A true Christian who says to God, God, I'll stay with trouble. I'll be able to endure illness. I'll be able to cope with singleness or widowhood. I'll be able to stay confident when I'm unemployed if I can be with you. You see, two very different ways of living. And that's Luth. She says, wherever you go, I'll go. Your God is my God. Where you die, I'll go. Two very different ways of living. Most people say, you know, I'll follow you, God, if you get me out of trouble. But Ruth says, I'll be in trouble if I can't be with the Lord, the God of Israel. And this means the real test of whether you believe in God is not how much you know about God, but what you're willing to do with that knowledge. You trust God, great. Good on you. But true trust in God is demonstrated when the heat is on, when the chips are down, when it really seems to be breathing down our necks, when things aren't going well. In that moment, do you trust God? And that's Ruth. See, many Christians, they're practical atheists. Yeah, I believe theoretically in God, but when actually uh, it comes down to it, Belief in God doesn't make any difference in my life as to how I respond to the difficulties in my life. Because if they did, it would affect them. It would change the way they respond to those difficulties. Many Christians, they're practical atheists. They believe in God, but it makes zero difference in their life, but not so for Ruth. She believes the word of God, that he has blessed this people, and she says, I want to be with that people and that God, and so she acts. That's what this story teaches us about, the true nature of faith. The second thing this story teaches us about is the nature of love. See, the second thing, you know, what would enlarge our love? The story of Christmas enlarges our love. See, what is it that turned Ruth into a woman of such loyalty and courageous love that made her be someone who would risk her life for her mother-in-law, that she'd travel to a foreign land to become poor so that Naomi would be provided for. That is incredible love. Now you could read this story simply, oh, she was a good person. No, 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 no. What made her this way? What changed her? What produced this love in her? Well, right at the start of the story, Naomi, notice, she chooses to go home And she stands on the road to go home and she says to her two daughters-in-law, go back to your family. 
She tries to send them back home, and yet Ruth won't go. Why? Because in sending Ruth back to her family, Ruth sees Naomi's radical love. See, she realized Naomi is putting the needs of her daughters-in-law ahead of her own. She is a widow, absolutely helpless, an old widow walking back to Bethlehem. She had no one to look after her. And yet she says to her daughters-in-law, hey, I know you've got a hope if you stay here. You go, you go home. Here's a woman who's getting on in there. She, Ruth's thinking, she needs us. She won't survive without us. And yet she's telling me to go back to my family, which is probably what's best for me. And in that moment, Ruth's life is changed for the good. It's as though she says, I've never seen anyone love the way you love that you're willing to put your needs aside for our benefit? Why are you willing to put my needs ahead of your security? And so she turns to Naomi and she says, I want what the Lord God has given you that enables you to love me like that. See, Naomi's love enlarges Ruth's love. But it isn't just Naomi's love. Over the story, Ruth is confronted with the God who loves her. No doubt Naomi had taught her how the Lord had redeemed her people out of Egypt, brought them through the Red Sea, through the wilderness to give them the land he had promised them. And no doubt Ruth had heard these stories about the faithfulness of God. She marveled that a God could be so generous, so forgiving, so obviously powerful, so devoted to one group of people. Her own gods were nothing like that. They were cruel, they were capricious, they couldn't be relied upon. But this God, the God of Naomi, would spread his wings to cover her. And, be and because of that, she believed. And Ruth was able to take the risks of love, leaving homeland, etc. That's what faith looks like when we trust God. Faith leads to love, courageous love. And the aim of this story, it's not just to entertain us, it's to empower us for radical, risk-taking works of love. That there is no safer place in all the universe than under the wings of the sovereign, all-wise, all-loving God. But the shadow of these wings may take us to dangerous places in the cause of love. And that's what happens for Ruth. You, you, you may end up a widowed immigrant living among people who hate you, but that will not be a wasted life when you do it in the cause of love. That's Ruth's story, and so she loves. Now, if that's the case, so notice Naomi's love for her turns Ruth into a loving person. The stories Naomi tells about her God turn Ruth into a loving person, how much more for us, right? You remember Ruth says, wherever you go, I'll go. Wherever you stay, I'll stay. Jesus Christ says something very similar, doesn't he? Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. I'll go with you. I'll die for you. I'll never leave you. And it's magnificent. Here's a woman who would be one of the great women in the line of Jesus, and she says, I won't leave you or forsake you. And history begins to throb with expectation for the coming Messiah, the great, 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 great grandson of Ruth. 
who would not just say to one woman, but who would say to all of us, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And if that kind of love from Jesus, uh, that kind of love should cause our hearts to overflow in love for one another. That's the second thing. This story teaches us about the nature of true love. And the third thing this story teaches us is the nature of true hope. Faith, hope, love. This is what Christianity is all about. Now, I don't know how your year has been. I think as we get to the end of every year, you look back and you realize, I think once you hit your 30s, this is a room of friends because you're all in your 30s or older, except for Jeremy up the back. Sorry, Jeremy. (laughs) But you know your 20s were like the best years of your life, and then you hit your 30s and like, oh, crap. (laughs) Like stuff starts to happen. And, uh, you know, I get to the end of every year, and it's just like, ugh, ugh. And there's just heartbreak and disappointment every year, but this story gives you and I hope. Uh, Because God, notice, God is doing a a 10,000 things in this story where it appears he's not actually doing anything. You know, when you read the Bible, if you're like me, you you read the Gospels and Jesus is healing people, he's speaking to people, God's appearing to people, he's sending angels, and all, you know, that happens, and you're like, where are the angels in my life? Like, where's the voice of God in my life? Like, where's the healing? In, where, why isn't God showing up in my life? Um, but then you read the book of Ruth, and there are no miracles. There are no dreams. There are no visions. There are no words from God. There are no burning bushes. It's a story just like ours. Ordinary events... People get sick, they die, they become widowed, they're lonely, marriages break down, life is hard, life is dangerous, there's great loneliness and God is silent. And the book of Ruth is saying to us that it's in the ordinary and even in the hard times that God is still at work. He's still there. He's working in 10,000 ways even though you don't see it. And the problem is you and I, we're still in the middle of the story. Whereas we read the Naomi and Ruth story, we've read how it finishes, and we're like, oh yeah, of course it was going to turn out nicely. But they didn't think it was going to turn out nicely in the middle of the story. From the end of the story, it always feels like, oh, of course everything's going to end up okay. But in the middle of the story, Naomi almost slips. She's so overwhelmed by her grief, the loss of her husband and sons, that she's in a state of disillusionment with God, but at least she keeps wrestling with him. And she returns home to Bethlehem, which is the land of promise. And at the end of the story, when the child is placed in her lap, everything makes sense from that position of the story, from the end. But in the middle of the story, it didn't make sense what God was doing. And in the middle of our story, you are in the middle of your story. If you want, what the heck are you doing, God, in this story? It never makes sense in the middle of the story. It only makes sense at the end of the story. And you and I, we are in the middle of the story. We literally do not know what will happen next. But the question is, do you trust the author? When he says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, do you believe him? Because if you believe him, you will not lose hope. Hope is simply confidence that what God has promised today, he will deliver in the future. 
Hope is what trust looks like when you look out into the future. And that's what this story is designed to give us. This story, it takes place in a little town called Bethlehem, which previously was famous for rape and pillage, a place of darkness and violence, but this would become known as the birthplace of kings. And a thousand days later, the king of kings himself would be born there. And he would turn a town of darkness into a town of hope. Your life might feel like like a place of tragedy and sadness. But by the grace of God, it can become a story from which great things occur. I am incredibly encouraged by this story. I remember a number of years ago, the first time I preached on it, uh, my year was just full of difficulty. One of my best friend's baby had a, was born with a congenital heart disease. Uh, in our family, we had to report missing to police one of our family members because he had disappeared. Uh, I had friends that were not returning phone calls. And the thing Liz and I constantly reminded ourselves that year is that we were in the middle of the story. We can't see how this all will play out, but God does. He is faithful to his people and we can trust him. And that filled us with hope. We are sure he will keep his promises, that he will never leave us or forsake it. Doesn't mean we won't end up in the land of famine, may happen, but we do know he won't forsake us. So we walk not knowing the future, but we trust God, we love each other, and we're filled with hope because God can be trusted. That's what this wonderful story teaches us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you, some of us, very much weighed down by the things that have happened in our lives this year, wondering whether we can trust you. That we've been weighed low and things have happened where we feel like you have taken the good things from us. Thank you for these stories in the Bible which help us feel in our bones, not just know in our heads that you are with us, that you won't forsake us and that you will never leave us. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, God with us, come to walk in our shoes, die in our place, rise again to give us new life. Help us to trust him. And from that trust, help us to be people who love generously. And may all of that fill us with such a confidence as we look out to our uncertain future that we'd be able to act with boldness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.